Hey, church. Um, my name is Tina Colon Williams, for those of you who don't know me. Um, and this week, I'll be continuing us on in our sermon series, which we've been in during the time of Lent. Lent being this multi-week season of reflection and study on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ leading up to his death and resurrection on Easter Sunday. Um, we've been in this series, this beautiful series called Walking with Jesus. Just a simple reflection on some stories from the Gospel of Mark and what they have to teach us about the life of Jesus following. Uh, the first sermon of the series, Josh shared with us about being like kids in relation to God, dependent and needy. The next week, Matt shared with us about what it looks like, what it means to enter suffering with Jesus, following Jesus on that road to Jerusalem. Shirley just last week shared with us about dependence, a posture of dependence over glory. And this week, we'll be looking at a specific example of faith, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, and what Bartimaeus's hunger has to teach us about the way of Jesus. Now, a short word on hunger. When I am hungry, it is bad. It's bad. It's bad for me. It's bad for everyone around me. I get what people call hangry. <laughs> Sinclair may know about this from me, but also maybe from himself, you know. Uh, I remember one time I was on a trip with Josh. I was about five months pregnant, and we were walking walking down the streets of Montreal, and it was in the summer, and it was hot, and I was miserable because I needed lunch, and I needed it immediately. Now, I had eaten breakfast a short time before. That is true, but obviously that amount of food was not enough. It was hot, and I was sweaty, and we parked the car so far from everything relevant. Um, and I was complaining, and I was complaining hard. I was in hanger mode, all right? And at some point on this walk, Josh turned to me, and he was like, I'm sure he said something like this. I don't remember the moment, but I'm sure he said something like, Tina, I love you. And I know that you're carrying our baby, and I'm thankful for that. But just because you are hangry doesn't give you a pass to stop being a disciple of Jesus. <laughs> My reaction in that moment was like, excuse me? This man is trying to rebuke me. He has no idea what I am going through. But in, after you know, some space and time and a lunch and some further reflection, I was able to be convicted by this word from my husband. Um, because it, it's true, I was 100% treating my hunger as a uh, full-on exception to my usual commitments of being a decent and kind human being. Pretty sure hunger is not a good thing. Uh, it makes us into bad people, as my story may illustrate, and it makes the world a sad place. And I know that we know this. Sometimes hunger latches onto the most unhelpful things. For me, now, I am in confession mode here. Safe space, yeah? Yeah? Um, for me, it's Domino's deep dish pizza. You may be thinking, that is a horrible thing to hunger for. What are you thinking? You live in New Haven, Tina. Um, but I'll be, I'll be honest, I'm a sucker for it. Throughout my pregnancy with Zoe, it happened to be my number one pregnant woman craving. Uh, the sad thing about deep dish Domino's pizza, at least in my experience, is that it will never satisfy you. Uh, 
<laughs> like, I can have a full dinner, have dessert a couple hours later. It's like 10 p.m. I need a Domino's deep dish pizza. I can throw down four slices of that and be like, what happened? There's nothing. Nothing happened. I'm still just as hungry. <laughs> I just want more. Hunger is supposed to exist, right, to, sh to make sure we have what we need for survival. It's a way of our bodies letting us know this is not okay. I need more. I need something else urgently in order to keep going. Hunger is what leads us to feed, and then the hunger is supposed to go away when things are made right. So once our basic nutritional needs are met, it feels like hunger isn't always helpful, right? And that's in part because we aim our hunger at things we don't actually need. Whenever we let ourselves really hunger for more, at least in the context of this broken world of ours, we usually just end up hangry, dissatisfied, and upset. A world without hunger is 100% a world worth building. But it's not the world we live in, is it? Ever since our OG ancestors in the Garden of Eden, hunger has been a fundamental part of the human experience. Now, those of us who have enough resources can try to insulate ourselves from it as much as possible or maybe numb our hunger with platitudes and ideologies that help keep the sharp edges of our hunger at bay. But whether or not we're trying to, we do hunger again and again and again. The question for us is, what are we doing with our hunger? And what does any of it have to do with our faith? Before we go any further uh, and dive into our scripture, I would love to pray for us if you would join me. Good God, we turn to you today, God. We've come here this afternoon, all of us in some, to some extent because we're hungry for you. We're hungry for God. Um, we want something real. We want to come alive in our following of you. So God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, would you meet with us in this place? Continue to dwell richly in this place. Would you fill these words, make them come alive? Teach us, teach us something new about ourselves. Um, use this time for the furtherance of your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our scripture for today is in Mark chapter 10, begins at verse 46. The main character of the story we're about to meet, read is a man named Bartimaeus. He enters the scene right after Jesus claps back at his disciples for cornering him to try to lock in a VIP spot in his future glory on the walk to Jerusalem, which is a pretty off-base ask, since as we heard last week, Jerusalem is where Jesus will eventually be tortured, executed, buried, and yes, resurrected from the dead. The next encounter right after that conversation that we see is this encounter with Bartimaeus. They came, then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him, be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus 
along the road. Bartimaeus is introduced to us here as a blind beggar, doubly marginalized. He's disabled and he's poor. This is not something held up as emulation worthy in his culture or in ours. And yet, his encounter with Jesus is recorded in the scriptures for all time. And he receives a miraculous healing that Jesus directly credits to his faith. Bartimaeus' transformative faith shows up in three ways that I think we can learn from here. All three of them fundamentally expressions of his hunger. He is desperate for Jesus. He is urgent about responding to Jesus' invitation. And he is honest about his desire. Desperation, urgency, and desire. We'll look at each one in turn. First, desperation. We learn from Bartimaeus that faith sometimes looks like desperation. Desperation instead of obsessing over our reputation. Desperation that is greater than our fear of rebuke. When Jesus encounters Bartimaeus in this story, it starts out with Bartimaeus screaming, right? A blind man, Bartimaeus, sitting by the roadside begging. He heard it was Jesus, and the first thing he does in the story is shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Clearly, this man's desperation runs deep. If you want Jesus and his disciples to think really well of you, you probably don't want to scream at them when they're clearly walking away. That kind of behavior is always the opposite of socially acceptable, obviously, given how the disciples react to him here. That kind of thing, screaming in the streets without seeming to care what other people think, is usually the only kind of thing you do when you're either completely incapable of like picking up on social cues or when you're really desperate. In Shirley's teaching last week about the disciples asking Jesus to ensure their greatness, please, she touched on how the disciples, like us, can be quite concerned about glory. They care a lot about their reputation, how they're seen by others. Bartimaeus, this blind beggar who's held up here as a model for faith, seems not to give a bleep about how he is seen by others. His desperate longing for Jesus, for the gaze of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, seems to overwhelmingly trump all of those concerns about his reputation. Now, what unfolds as a result of Bartimaeus' desperate cries is literally a version of my worst nightmare. He is rebuked publicly by Jesus' followers. Many rebuked him and told him, be quiet. Now, we know this. People are generally pretty careful to protect their reputation, and that is an understatement. In this day and age, I think it's fair to say that we pretty much live in a world marked by a cultural terror of rebuke. This is the age of Twitter and Reddit or whatever other internet wormholes exist to drag you in public. This is the age of being canceled, the age of takedowns. One poorly chosen phrase, one resurfaced distasteful post can be enough for you to lose your standing, your friends, your fans, your job. Now, perhaps more than ever, we are genuinely terrified of being seen as problematic, terrified of public outrage and rebuke. So we agonize, we carefully curate our speech and our public persona to make sure it can hold up to an increasingly judgmental court of public opinion. Anyone in my generation and below, I think especially, has learned to be super, super savvy at navigating the norms of what is socially acceptable and what is not socially acceptable. Most times, the safest thing to do is to say absolutely nothing at all. 
until someone else slips up, and then you hop on the rebuke bandwagon, right? Outrage is a contagious thing, and it can be terrifying. But Bartimaeus's desperation in this story seems to break all the social rules. Now, I've long identified as a people pleaser, because I like to please people, and I want people to be pleased with me. But nobody was pleased with Bartimaeus in this crowd. They basically told him to shut up in front of Jesus. Who do you think you are, Bartimaeus? Quit bothering the teacher. You want to work with the Savior, do it the right way, and wait in line. You are being problematic. Bartimaeus doesn't care. He, shout, he just shouts all the more, son of David. Have mercy on me. This man was desperate for Jesus' mercy, desperate for kindness. Remember, he was a beggar with a disability in a culture that treated disabled people as though the disability was their fault. He probably spent the vast majority of his life being rebuked, rejected, ignored. Unlike most of us here, he had no reputation left to lose. And I think that this left some room for his desperate faith to flow uninhibited. Son of David, have mercy on me. I have nothing left to lose. Crowd, I do not fear your rebuke. I could care less about your opinion. I just desperately want a touch of kindness and mercy from God. I hunger for it enough that it is worth more to me than the social approval of all of you. This is what faith looks like. Hunger that is greater than the fear of rebuke. When was the last time your faith offended anyone's sensibilities to the point of rebuke. Now, I'm not talking about people being offended generally by institutional religion or people offended by assumptions that they may make about your faith based on stereotypes or politics or offended by the distortions of American evangelicalism in the era of Christian white nationalism. Not that. I'm talking about our personal faith, our reliance on Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our hunger and our need for Jesus as the only name by which we can be saved, our desperate dependence on God to move and to hear us and to love us. When was the last time your faith in Jesus was noticeable enough to draw, to offend someone's social sensibilities? Or when was the last time you were hungry enough for Jesus that you genuinely didn't care what other people thought? If it's been a while or never, could it be that we're wired a little bit more like the disciples than we are like Bartimaeus? More concerned with our reputation and enforcing social norms than we are desperate for Jesus? When was the last time our hunger for the real Jesus, to the real gospel, fully outweighed our concerns about what other people think about you? I'm asking myself the same question because it is truly a convicting one to me. Now, I don't intend for the takeaway here to be a directive to just, oh, just care less what other people think. Because anyone who's tried that can tell you it does, that doesn't work. Um, or it turns you into kind of a jerk. <laughs> we don't want that. Um, but I do think that there's something to be said about giving ourselves permission to be appropriately hungry for Jesus. To give ourselves room to long deeply for a new and different way of relating to God. And to let that longing get unruly and disruptive even if needed. When we give room for our hunger to God to be fully expressed, our worry about reputation, I think, automatically shrinks in comparison, and it gets put in its proper place as far less important than Jesus. Now, I want to pause and just challenge us here a little bit, church. If you may please have some grace. Um, I think sometimes our passion about things can be more informed by worry about our reputation than by desperation, true desperation for a different world. 
Now, you've heard a lot about this. We've been wading into some hard conversations lately as a church family around queer sexuality and Christian theology, which is a topic that has a lot of very loud voices on both sides of the proverbial aisle. And I think in this conversation also, it is so important that we ask ourselves, are we relating to this more like Bartimaeus or more like the disciples? Are we actually truly letting ourselves be desperate for a more healed, more whole way of relating to one another as a church family? Are we desperate for healing from the divisions and brokenness that have marred church history when it comes to the queer community? Are we desperate for healing from cycles of shame and bondage in our own relationships to sex and sexuality? Or are we mostly desperate to have the right answer so we won't get rebuked by anyone? Are we desperately afraid of someone else looking at us in judgment and calling us a heathen or calling us a bigot? Which hunger looms larger for us here? Hunger for the kingdom to come or hunger for our reputation to be blessed and protected? What if we let ourselves dare to be desperate for freedom and wholeness in this area of our personal lives and in this area of our lives together? I think that kind of faith might be messier than just quickly doing whatever brings us the least amount of rebuke, but I think it could change us and our church and our city and the world for the better. Let's learn from Bartimaeus, fam. We can be so reputation-focused, so quick to rebuke other people, but I think God wants us to be different than that, to be hungry people, desperate people, dreamers, audacious enough to think that Jesus would give us his wholehearted attention and change everything if we just demanded it enough, desperate enough to want that even more than we fear any and all potential haters. So we can learn something from Bartimaeus' desperation his hunger as expressed through desperation. We can also learn from Bartimaeus's urgency. We see here that faith looks sometimes like urgency instead of passivity. Faith that is greater than our fear of disappointment. Bartimaeus's disruptive screams over the disciples' rebuke actually managed to get Jesus's attention. And what Jesus does in response is so different from the disciples' knee-jerk response to his cries. He calls him over. And Bartimaeus does not take that invitation lightly. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you, throwing his cloak aside. He jumped up to his feet and came to Jesus. Out of all the Gospels, this is true, the Gospel of Mark is the one that uses the fewest words. Most of this book of the Bible reads pretty abruptly actually. A disproportionate number of the verses feature the word immediately. Um, and there is very little flowery or descriptive language that we see throughout Mark. But the author makes a point to be descriptive and dramatic in portraying Bartimaeus's response, doesn't he? He doesn't just come to Jesus. He throws his cloak aside, jumps to his feet, and comes to Jesus. Bartimaeus moves with urgency at the first hint of an invitation here. He's calling you. He's not hindered by the fact that the people who deliver this message are the same people who were just rebuking him in public. Nor does he seem to be slowed down, but what kind of seems like a little bit of shade in the potential tone of their delivery, cheer up, on your feet. They're probably being a little rude here. I imagine this was spoken with no small amount of sarcasm, maybe like an eye roll. They were just telling him to shut up. But Bartimaeus, remember, was hungry for Jesus. So at the first hint of an invitation, he gets up and runs for it. 
Over the years, I have heard a lot of teachings in Christian churches and contexts about the importance of waiting patiently. I myself try, try to drill this message into my children, particularly my daughter, Joy. I know Josh has brought this up in a sermon before because it's, it's true. Joy really does treat every interaction as an emergency. She, her volume, it's like the default volume is 10. I need water! 1.5 seconds later, Mommy, you are not getting me water! I'm like, oh my God. My response is always like, be patient. I'll get you water when I get to it. She's like, you're dying, woman, please. And then I immediately get her water because, because I must. Patience, patience is most definitely a virtue that we need in our lives. And waiting on God absolutely and unequivocally does good and deep spiritual work in our souls. Contentment. Perhaps and even especially in times of waiting, long times of waiting, is a central part of the life of faith for any believer, like it or not. There are many, 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 many sermons that need to be preached about this. But there can also be a bit of a sinister side to this patient's mindset. A quiet passivity that can set in and dampen our urgency for the kingdom of God. We wait passively for God rather than burdening God with our troubles and needs. We can think to ourselves, if God really wants to meet with me or speak to, to me, God can do it in God's own time. So we don't go out of our way to meet with God. We don't intentionally carve out time to pursue God's presence. We take what comes our way and asks for our attention, and we give God thanks for it, and we stop there. We can wait passively for others, too, rather than burden them with our troubles and needs. It can be easy to come to church Sunday after Sunday and every single week hear a call to get up and receive individual prayer ministry. And it can be easy for us to nod at the words in our seats. Yeah, that tracks. But much harder for us to actually get up and ask someone, please pray for me. Instead, we sit and wait, hoping for a word from God without directly asking anyone to give us one. And I don't say this in judgment at all. Because I know this passive posture can be practically very helpful, especially as a protective buffer against disappointment. If we don't call or text our estranged siblings, but wait for them to have a change of heart and reach out to us, we for sure don't feel as devastated as we do when we reach out and they don't respond. If we stick to only doing what is directly asked of us, we for sure fail a lot less and we disappoint ourselves and others less often because of it. There's safety in passivity. Active urgency is scary because what if it disappoints? But I wanna remind us that pretty much every illustration of faith that Jesus gives in his teachings throughout the gospels looks way more urgent than it does patient. Like the man who finds a treasure in a field and is so excited that he sells everything he owns immediately to buy the whole field. Or the neighbor who bangs down his neighbor's door at midnight to force him to hand over a loaf of bread for a hungry out-of-town guest that he's unprepared for. Or a widow who bothers the authorities so much seeking justice that they eventually just cave and give her whatever she wants. Or the group of friends who can't just wait in line to get Jesus to take a look at their paralyzed friends. So they literally bust a hole in the roof and throw him down through the ceiling. Again and again and again in the Gospels, Jesus holds up these examples of impatience and almost irresponsible urgency when seeking out things of the kingdom as our models for faith. 
not examples of polite waiting or religious contentment with the way things are. There must be something to this. This passivity versus urgency dynamic, I think, is particularly striking when it comes to physical healing from pain and suffering. In college, when I was a decade and a half younger in my walk with Jesus, there was this time when I approached physical illness with an urgency like this. During our sophomore year of college, my college roommate and best friend at the time started experiencing some really concerning physical symptoms um, that she didn't understand. It was like tingling in her hands, this nerve pain, chronic fatigue, nothing 100% debilitating, but definitely confusing and exhausting and terrifying and put a shadow over her life. I was pretty well connected to Christian community at the time and I had a few close friends who definitely knew how to pray. So we prayed. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed and prayed for my friend. For months in a row, every chance we could get when we were together and praying, we would pray for healing. I remember meeting in my other friend's room, just sitting on the floor of her dorm room and we're crying, like praying for God to move and to heal our friend. Like we knew she wasn't dying and we were all figuring out different ways to cope with it, but we deeply wanted a miracle. And it didn't really work. Her condition did not go away. In fact, it actually got worse for a while. She had to move off campus, had to pull out of school altogether for a minute, and then struggled with various health conditions for years and years to come. Chronic sickness became another fact of life for a while. Now, eventually, way after college, a lot of these health conditions were actually healed, but it was the slow kind of healing not the right away bang down the doors and watch a breakthrough kind of healing. This kind of experience of disappointment and unanswered prayers, I think, forces a sort of crossroads in us. It can come to us over and over in life at different times. Are we going to be people who adapt, learn to adapt really quickly to our suffering and resign ourselves to the way things are? Are we going to clothe ourselves in a more passive faith, usually one that looks like a form of Christian maturity, and wait for God to make all the first moves? Are we going to assume that our experiences of chronic hardship are probably God's will for our lives, unless God specifically tells us otherwise? Or are we going to be the kind of people who urgently run towards God, expecting a move, even in our places of chronic hurt and disappointment? Are we going to be a break a hole in the roof kind of people? like the paralytic's friends, a throw off your coat and jump to your feet kind of people like Bartimaeus. Even after we're disappointed again and again in this broken world of sickness and death and rejection, are we still going to run urgently toward Jesus every time we need him at the first hint of an open door? I genuinely hope we do. Because as the story of the once blind Bartimaeus teaches us, that's the kind of faith that moves mountains, hunger that is greater than our fear of disappointment. So I want to ask us, where has disappointment led to passivity in your pursuit of Jesus? This could be one of those gut-wrenching experiences of praying for breakthrough that doesn't happen. Or maybe it's entrenched conflict and unreconciliation with people who were supposed to be like family to us. Perhaps for you, it's church hurt, disappointment in a particular religious institution that has you tempted to you know, learn to just sit back and close yourself off in those spaces. Some of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Some of you in this room are currently being tempted to give up all hope of reconciliation with someone else in this room. And you're waiting for God or them to just make the first move. But passivity is not our only option. What would it look like to take Jesus' invitations urgently, however poorly or indirectly the invitations get delivered? What would it look like for you to rush to be with him, urgently demand an audience with him, instead of waiting for God to make the first move? Church, let us be people of desperation and urgency for the kingdom of God, that our faith might awaken something truly new. So, which brings us to our third aspect of Bartimaeus' faith. His faith looks like desperation. His faith looks like urgency. And we see also that faith looks like desire, naming our desire. Desire um, instead of numbness. Desire that is greater than our fear of vulnerability. When when Bartimaeus finally gets face-to-face with Jesus, the two of them have a conversation, and it changes Bartimaeus' life completely. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, you received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now, remember, Jesus is fully human, but he's also fully God. He probably knows everything, or at least he could know everything if he wanted to. He could have healed Bartimaeus on the spot with no words exchanged at all. In fact, we know this because he did it at least one other occasion for the bleeding woman elsewhere in the Gospels. We see how this bleeding woman with a chronic illness creeps up on Jesus in a crowd and just touches his clothes and immediately she's healed without having to ask for it. And yet, Jesus still asks Bartimaeus to speak out loud in his own words, what he truly desires. Why? It can be scary to name your desires out loud. I think because, in part because it identifies our need in the presence of someone else who is bearing witness to it. And we don't like that, especially in cultures like ours, the northeast corner of the United States of America. We generally like to be seen as put together and competent and not super needy. This goes back to the reputation obsession I mentioned before. We like to be known more for our confidence and our strength, right? To be seen in our expertise, not our confusion. Um, And I think even those of us who are visibly needy and not put together can struggle to name our need out loud. I saw this dynamic at work back when I was a part of Agape. This is a longtime partner church of ECV where we held services for homeless folks in New Haven every single Sunday morning, super early, 8 a.m. Um, And the vast majority of Agape attendees were people who lived on the streets and they were struggling with homelessness and addiction um, and were clearly in stressful living situations of all varieties. And every single week, we had a time where we'd ask people what they wanted prayer for, what they wanted God to do for them. And every time we saw that some people were so bold and full of faith in their asks, over and over and over again, asking for the impossible. I want to be reconciled with my kids. I want to be free from addiction. I want housing. I want everything to be better. I want this nightmare to end. But every single week, we also saw a sizable group of people. Often, it was the most religious people, the ones who knew the Bible verses by heart and participated the most in Bible study. There's always this group of people who never had any personal prayer requests to share. Beyond, I just want to thank God for waking me up this morning. Or, I want to pray for world peace. I look at the person, I'm like, know your life. You want to pray for world peace? That's what you want to pray for? 
Um, Because it's not like they didn't have needs, right? But I think that there's something about it that feels too vulnerable to name your needs out loud. When we articulate our actual desires for things to change in our lives, it makes them real. It threatens the numbness that we've had to put on to cope with our reality not changing for years. It threatens the numbness we've put on to protect ourselves from disappointment. It's a lot easier to name the desires that we actually can control ourselves. God, please give me discernment and wisdom as I take this exam that I've been studying for for weeks and will take anyway. Um, God, please be with me as I give this presentation at work that I've already prepared and I'm for sure going to give and will be over when I'm done. These are fine and good prayers. It's good. It's good and beautiful to invite God to be with us in the life that we are building, to hold our hands as we build, to pray for blessings we can still manage on our own if we don't get them. But it is categorically a different thing to name a desire out loud to God and to others that we have no ability to fulfill on our own. God, I have been blind my entire life. I really, truly want to see. God, I have been bitter and hurt for years by what this person said to me. I really, truly want our relationship to be restored and to be free from my mistrust and frustration. God, my whole life, I've never known what healthy community looks like. I really, truly want to belong to a family. God, my marriage is falling apart. I really, deeply want us to love one another again. When enough time passes in a particular experience of Jerusalem, particular place of suffering. We cope, a lot of times, by numbing our desire. Sometimes it's hard for us to name our desire, not just because it feels vulnerable to do so, but because we have actually convinced ourselves we no longer desire it. We no longer want reconciliation or healing because it's probably not even possible, so what's the point of wanting it at all? This reminds me of another conversation between Jesus and another disabled man. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, we see a miraculous healing at a pool called Bethesda, which is a place where disabled people would wait in hopes of touching the sacred waters as soon as they were stirred and receiving a miracle. And there was a man there who had been an invalid, as the Bible says, for 38 years. And Jesus does to him what he does to Bartimaeus. He tells him to name his desire out loud. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. This man was sitting at the healing pool. Presumably, the right answer to Jesus' question was an obvious yes. Of course I want to get well, Jesus. What do you think I'm doing here? But the man doesn't say yes. I want that automatically says exactly what the last 38 years have taught him to believe. I can't. I just can't. I can't get healed, not on my own, and I can't even want it anymore. But what is so beautiful to me about this story is that Jesus doesn't fault him in that moment for his lack of faith. He actually meets him right where he is. And even when this man cannot put words to his desire because it's been so numbed by 38 years of suffering, Jesus gives him the healing he doesn't even know how to ask for. 
Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Jesus has so much compassion for us. So much. Remember, he's fully God and he's fully human. He understands. He gets it. He understands our felt need to numb our desire and protect us from the vulnerability of hoping for a different world that is outside of our control. I think that's why Jesus is encouraging us to name our desire out loud against all odds. It's to keep that hope alive because Jesus can still heal us even when our faith is too broken. And we can also choose to exercise our faith and that faith can unlock possibilities that we simply cannot conjure up on our own. Bartimaeus too probably was disabled his whole entire life, just like the paralyzed man at the pool. But Bartimaeus chose to have the boldness to name his desire out loud. And his faith was credited as the reason for his healing. Jesus says, your faith has healed you. And immediately he receives his sight. So how do we answer Jesus' question? What do you want me to do for you? Take a moment right now and think about it. If the first thing that comes to mind is something you could kind of probably do by yourself, think a little deeper. Where might Jerusalem have numbed your desire for a different world? What if we were to let our desire show? Name it out loud. What might Jesus do with that kind of faith? I'm going to close by sharing three next steps you can try on in light of this teaching. And then there will be a time of ministry response as we have each week. So some next steps that you can think about. You can write these down. You can snap a picture of it. Um, one is to think about, in what areas of your life are you concerned, really concerned, about your reputation? Maybe try to tell someone else and pray for your kingdom hunger to grow bigger than your fear in that area. The telling someone else part is important. As much as I love the good journaling prompt that I like figure out by myself and then never share with any other human beings, I encourage you to try telling other people the like things you're working through, the revelations that you have. It actually changes things. Um, Jesus isn't in the flesh here and now right in front of us, right? I wish he was, but he is not. And so sometimes a human is the next best thing to like move towards Jesus, to tell them out loud what you, what you are thinking through. So that's one thing you can try. Second thing you can try is to take a concrete step this week to actively get Jesus' attention. This is a way to shake yourself out of that um, passivity that can be really easy for us to settle into and, um, yeah, move into that urgency that we learned from Bartimaeus. One thing, I grew up in like a, even, well, my teenager years were like in an evangelical church context where we talked about a quiet time where like you set aside time in the morning to like be with God and then later you know in life and my faith I'm like oh I don't need that quiet time Jesus with me always but like there's something to that actually like carving out time that is untouched by other people and other things and tv and your articles and like whatever busy emails you're doing to just stop and be like I'm going to only be with Jesus right now um so I encourage you if you don't do a quiet time do one every day or every week or every whenever you can, like, do one. Try that on. And, and maybe you need a loud time. <laughs> I tell this to Zoe and Joy sometimes, like, I don't want quiet time. I want loud time. I'm like, okay, just close the door. Um, <laughs> but you might need a loud time where, like, actually, instead of just being quiet and introspective with Jesus, you might need to rage at Jesus for a little bit, like, yell at God, 
Scream at him what you're mad about. Bring all that to him. That might be your urgency. Might be your Bartimaeus moment. Try that on. Maybe close the door so you don't disturb anyone, but, you know. Um, try on a quiet time or a loud time. This week. Try it this week. And the last one is um, make a list of your deepest desires. And include the ones that you notice you started to grow numb to. Um, ask God out loud to satisfy those desires. I think it'll do something in us. The worship team can go ahead and come back up. Now I want to name something. <clears throat> For some of us here, this is a painful teaching to hear. And that's because your Jerusalem season has been really deep. And to be told from the front by me to just move forward to Jesus, move towards Jesus with desperation, urgency, and desire, that just feels like an impossible and almost unfair ask. Um, if that is you, if you have been in a place where your desperation, your urgency, your desire has been sort of quelched, squelched, like squelched by suffering, um, I want to ask you to do something difficult. Um, I'm going to ask you to respond in a public way and seek prayer from others. We're all in this building today because we're hungry in some way for a God who can do impossible things. To love the unlovable, to heal the unhealable, to make possible a beauty we just can't manufacture by ourselves. And I know that this room is full of testimonies, it's a lot of them we don't know and won't ever know, of how God has shown up in impossible, life-changing ways. If it weren't, then we just wouldn't be here on a Sunday afternoon. We'd find other things to do. And if you're in a place where your faith feels just broken by life, um, and your des desperation and urgency and desire have been a little bit squashed by fear of different forms, I want to give a space for the body of believers to have faith for you, to let other people carry you for a minute. So if you identify with that, with that sort of feeling beat down by life, I wanna invite you in this moment to stand. There is no shame and there is no judgment. We have all been there in different ways. But I wanna invite you to stand or to raise your hand if you don't feel like standing um, so that your church family can be family can pray and minister. God, for every broken heart, for every weary faith, come. Holy Spirit, come. We are not in a hurry. Come and do a new thing. If you are near someone who is standing, I invite you to extend a hand towards them to pray in your heart, out loud. Ask God on their behalf. God, would you move? God, would you do a new thing? God, would you bring about breakthrough? God, would you lift off the heavy blanket of disappointment, the temptation of numbness. God, would you do what only God can do? What only God can do. There is space here. Spirit, come. Let us not be intimidated by the weight of our suffering. Let us not be afraid. 
pot is bigger and God is good. God's kindness is here. If you're a trained prayer minister and you are able to get up now and move towards folks with their hands up and actually pray for them out loud, give them a blessing and encouragement, a word from the Lord for them, they're hungry for a word from the Lord. So prayer ministers, let's get up and pray and ministry to one another. And to give space to let this ministry continue. Others of us here are resonating with the word in a different way. Maybe there's something else that was said that is stirring in your hearts. There's a chance to get prayer. There's a chance to move towards the Lord. And I encourage you to do that, to get up and get prayer. Before you leave this room today, make somebody pray for you.